Hi, welcome to the Grace Life Podcast. In churches, the Bible is taught as truth and as a guide for life. Matter of fact, much of the time, this Word of God is revered as flawless and perfect. But we may ask ourselves, how can that be true, given what we've learned and discovered about this world? Questions come to mind like, hasn't the Bible been refuted by science? Is the Bible supported by anything in history? And how can it be God's Word if sinful men wrote it? As believers, we must be able to trust God's Word, if that's what it is. This series is about answering the tough questions so that we can find out, is it possible to have faith in God without checking our brains at the door? Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Grace Life. Who's glad to be here? Come on, that was, uh, this is your first time back, like in a long time, right? You're a little more excited than that, I hope. So uh, anyway, hey, uh, before we go any further, I want to say hello and welcome everybody, especially any guests that we have with us. So glad to have you worshiping with us today. And uh, also want to say before you come to a worship service next weekend, I want to go ahead and make sure you know, check the times before you come. Uh, There's a good chance that we're going to need to make some adjustments to best meet the needs of our church family this coming week. And uh, I'd hate to have you in the parking lot when we're not here, and I would hate to be here in an empty room again. I did that for like three months. I don't want to be alone in here again. So let's make sure we're all here at the, the same time. Well, today we're kicking off a new series, one that I am very excited about. You've been hearing hints about it through our last couple of series. Uh, we've been planning this for over a year and uh, talking with my friend Daryl here uh, for over a year about doing the research for this and helping out to make this happen. This series is simply called The Bible. And uh, the reason for that is because I'm just going to read it to you. I'm glad somebody found that funny. Literally, the other service only can't laugh. Like, they didn't. Get... I think they thought, oh my gosh, is he really? Okay, no, I'm not. I'm not going to just read the Bible to you. What this series is about is how we we have some difficulty sometimes with some of the things that are in the Bible or what some other people tell us about the Bible in light of science or history. And and we've maybe been given the idea that some of the things that we think are in the Bible are are not true or couldn't be true, maybe as far as to say there couldn't be a God. And so there there are a lot of difficulties uh, that sometimes we we come across, even uh, to the point that some of us would think there's a choice between having faith or having intelligence. And so I, I spent over 10 years as a school teacher, uh, over 10 years as a youth pastor, and I've seen a lot of people either struggle with their faith or leave their faith altogether because they didn't have good answers to some difficult questions or some debates uh, or so forth out there. And so anyway, as uh, we started talking about doing this series, I, was, uh, I met with Daryl, I think, on a totally different uh, topic and said, hey, I'm excited about this. And as I got to know a little bit more about Daryl, I asked him if he would be my research assistant. And as he went away and began uh, preparing the research and putting things in order, I very quickly figured out that him being my research assistant was a joke because uh, he's brilliant. So let me tell you a little bit about Daryl here. He has spent over 40 years as an engineer and a scientist, actually retired from his last position as the chief science officer of that organization. And Uh, You know, I I realized I could just stand up here and try to look really smart reading some of the stuff that he had given me to to make these these claims or cases or whatever. And then 
uh, you know, I thought it'd be a lot better if we just sat down and had a conversation. It's a whole lot easier for me to ask a question uh, and let you answer it since you actually understand all this. In addition to 40 years in this field, it's also just a personal hobby and passion of his. Would you guys all help me welcome Daryl Mordente to the stage today? Thank you. Thank you. And so uh, as we get into this, um, we're, we're going to start out kind of in the shallow end of the pool uh, and, and just address the idea that um, science has actually proven that faith is, is a crutch. It's not a real thing, that there's not actually a God, and science has gone as far as to prove that. Uh, is that correct? Absolutely not. Uh, not only has science not uh, disproven the existence of God, science is not capable of doing that. And the basic reason for that is that science is concerned with the study of natural phenomena, natural laws, the laws of science they're referred to. Um, it is not concerned with the supernatural, uh, really. It's the, it's the natural laws that it studies. Uh, when you do hear from time to time uh, certain atheist scientists claim that they have now disproven the existence of God. They have moved out of the realm of science and they're into the realm of philosophy, humanistic uh, uh, atheism in particular. So what about a very famous debater, uh, scientist who has claimed to do so by the name of Richard Dawkins? I think everybody would right. bring that name to mind. Right. Uh, uh, Richard, Richard Dawkins is an evolutionary biologist. He is also an activist atheist, and by that I mean he has a gospel he wants to preach, atheism. He wrote a book called The God's Delusion, and in that book he basically claimed that the concept of God is something that came about through evolutionary uh, uh, happenings in the human mind, and that this, this uh, concept of a God is a total delusion, a crutch needed by some that we need to overcome. In response to him, another very famous mathematician by the name of David Berlinski, who is not a Christian, not a believer, he is an agnostic bordering on atheism, uh, wrote a book in response, his book he called The Devil's Delusion. And I want to read from you a short quote of what he said about the idea of science disproving the existence of God. Uh, Has anyone ever provided proof of God's inexistence? Not even close. Has quantum cosmology explained the emergence of the universe or why it is even here? Not even close. Have the scientists explained why our universe seems to be fine-tuned to allow for the existence of life? Not even close. Are physicists and biologists willing to believe in anything as long as it is not religious thought? Close enough. Does anything in the sciences or in their philosophies justify the claim that religious belief is irrational, not even in the ballpark? Is scientific atheism a frivolous exercise in intellectual contempt dead on? Wow. So, to be clear, uh, that is an agnostic who is leaning towards an atheist, rebutting another atheist, and that's what he has to say about scientific study claiming to prove there's no God. Okay, so is he just a strange outlier out there? He's all alone in this kind of an opinion? No. Uh, There's another uh, one, another evolutionary biologist and an atheist, uh, Stephen Jay Gould. Um, He, uh, as I said, is an atheist, but I like to say at least he's an honest atheist on this issue. Um, and and, And he doesn't believe that science could disprove the existence of God, and this is what he wrote. 
Science tries to document the factual character of the natural world and to develop theories that explain these facts. Religion, on the other hand, operates in the equally important but utterly different realm of human purposes, meanings, and values, subjects that the factual domain of science might illuminate but can never resolve. Okay, so all of those that you've mentioned so far are atheist or agnostic, and so that kind of gives us the idea that that is the scientific community out there. Are there actually Christians in the scientific community? Yes, uh, there are numerous Christians uh, in the scientific uh, uh, world that are dedicated to science, pursuing science, engineering, uh, that are also professing believers, and there have been through centuries. But even more important than that fact is the fact that science itself, the modern scientific method, owes its very existence to Christian philosophy. And that is outlined in this book here, The Soul of Science by Nancy Piercy. Uh, in this book, she makes the case for, she shows you when the scientific method actually got developed. Um, ancient Rome, uh, the, the Egyptians, uh, the Chinese, they all had uh, very interesting technologies, very amazing technologies, but none of them developed the scientific method. The scientific method wasn't developed until about the 1600s and it was developed in Western Europe. Interestingly, that was occurring right after the Bible started getting written in the common languages of the day and more and more people could see what it says. At any rate, the scientists, men, in, men interested in science at that time, uh, I gotta take it back a little bit uh, to help you understand this. Uh, forget about your cell phones, forget about your airplanes, your automobiles and all the technology, your lights that switch on and off, all that stuff, and try to transport yourself back to 1600. In that time frame, we had no understanding of modern science. Electricity was a lightning strike, that's all we had. We didn't even have batteries. Um, our concepts of uh, the law of gravity hadn't been discovered yet. Laws of motion were thoroughly misunderstood. But men reading in the Bible, reading what the Bible had to say about God, realized that God was a God of order and that he created a universe of order and that he governed that universe. And if he governed it, there must be laws, laws of nature by which he governed them. And so they said they'll put their faith in that, that, that those exist, and they'll put their time and energy and money and effort into studying that in the hope that they could figure out what those laws actually were. They did that, and that modern method is called the scientific method. It works like this. I'm sure you've heard it in your high school classes probably. Uh, you make observations. You then make a theory, and then you test the theory. That's the basic modern scientific method developed early in the 1600s. It is used today by all kinds of scientists, whether they're atheists or not. So uh, you have, uh, uh, who are some of these men? Uh, you have Kepler uh, and uh, Newton are two of the names I, would, I could mention. Um, Kepler was, the, uh, was an astronomer who uh, took very precise measurements of uh, the, the uh, orbits of planets and figured out that it was really the Earth and the, and the planets that were orbiting around the sun rather than, than everything else were orbiting around the Earth. Was he a Christian? Okay, well, let me, <laughs> let me use this. This is what he wrote in one of his notebooks. He just burst out spontaneously in prayer and wrote this in. I give you thanks, creator and God, that you have given me this joy in thy creation. And I rejoice in the works of your hands. See, I have now completed the work to which I was called. In it, I have used all the talents 
you have lent to my spirit. He saw his calling to be a scientist, and he didn't see it at all inconsistent with being a Christian believer. Newton, John Newton, Isaac Newton, excuse me, Isaac Newton is the man who developed calculus, developed the law of gravity, uh, the laws of motion that we use to send uh, men to the moon and back. Um, this is what he wrote about the solar system. This most beautiful system of sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. His understanding of science, which was revolutionary, uh, did not in any way put him off uh, from his belief in God. He did not have to check his brain when he entered the church. And to me, that's what's significant, because if, say, Richard Dawkins were to come in here and challenge us, and even if it were a debate looking at history, he would probably say, so what, that some Christians went in search of science and, and, and you know, and became scientists? What, what's the big deal to that? And it is significant, actually, that Christians went looking right. for uh, a, an orderly universe as a result of an orderly God that created that. And Revealed they, in the Bible. They found what they thought was that evidence. What, mm -hmm. to me, is significant is that uh, those quotes, because as those Christians became scientists, they became stronger Christians. Right. And, and the idea that we have today of the scientific world versus the Bible is that it is science versus the Bible, which is not actually the case at no. all, but that's no. the idea that's given to us. Right. And so we believe that if anybody were to venture into intelligence uh, and science and facts, that they would by default lose their faith because the evidence would be so overwhelming. What's amazing to me is that as these men and women throughout history have uh, gone into the scientific field, that their faith has increased yes. and been strengthened. Right. And uh, are there others? Yeah, you could, if you were to uh, Google a list of Christians in science and technology, you would find a list of hundreds of men and women down through history that have been mathematicians, scientists, engineers, uh, that have made major discoveries uh, in science. Uh, Lord Kelvin, who developed the first and second law of thermodynamics, all the way down to modern days, James Tour, who is a leading uh, nanotechnology engineer. All of these people, devout Christians. And so just like you, they are able to go to work in the scientific field Monday through Friday, and they have, uh, in many cases, PhDs in their yeah, field. Yes, absolutely. And then they're able to come to church on Sunday and not believe that that is a contradiction, that they're not absolutely. having to choose one over the other. Absolutely. They are making great strides in, uh, in the development of science and our understanding of the natural world, and in no way does that conflict with their religious beliefs. Okay, so... That was the easy stuff. Let's jump into the deep end of the pool because I think what anybody uh, watching who has uh, uh, wanted to object, if they wanted to object, this would be their objection at this point. Um, there is something out there in the scientific world that flat out says this is the way and the Bible's way is wrong. Um, the Bible has an answer to how we came uh, to be. Uh, how the world came to be, the universe, people, everything. There's, the Bible has a version, and then there's a scientific theory that is taught uh, as the leading theory, if, if not the accepted version of truth. Uh, and this person who created the theory, their name reigns in the scientific world. Um, and so today, since our topic today is, has science refuted uh, the Bible? Um, most people who would go to science class and hear this theory and see this taught written in a book would say, absolutely, absolutely science has refuted the Bible. 
So we, we just need to go ahead and address the elephant in the room, uh, a man named Darwin and his version of how we got here. So what do you have to say about Darwin and his theory? Okay, so um, <clears throat> Charles Darwin, I'm sure we've all heard the names, as you said, um, wrote a book, uh, The Origin of Species, in 1859. And basically, he, led, he laid out a theory, uh, I'll call it a theory, laid out a theory uh, of uh, how simple life, what he considered to be simple life, evolved to complex life like human beings. Uh, Fundamental to the operation of his theory, fundamental um, things that he believed, was that this occurred through random mutations and chance. He was trying to eliminate God from this whole process. Random chance, lots of time, natural selection, and then there'd be a whole lot of fossils. Now we're gonna go through each of those elements because I'm gonna show you why they fail, and then later I'm gonna tell you again why <laughs> Modern science doesn't even accept Darwinian theory anymore. Okay, so let's pause right there. But yes. Because I, I like to call you out on this yes. and make sure everybody here understands you know the gravity of that statement. Yes. That as a reputable science yourself, scientist yes. yourself, and, yes. and people who know you and, and the organizations you've worked for and your career was not insignificant by any means, and uh, you know this is recorded, this is broadcast, it's on the internet, not just as a one-time play, it's out there to be found by anybody who wants to argue. And you are going on the record as saying that modern science does not accept Darwinian evolution. Yes, and I'm gonna show it to you in their own writings. Okay. But first we'll talk about why they don't, what's the problem with it. And uh, the first thing we're gonna take a look at is random chance. Does random chance work? And we're gonna talk about the formation of a simple protein, okay? We have our bodies are made up of proteins, plant and animals all made up of proteins. I'm gonna show you how a protein is formed. Now, a protein consists of amino acids. They are just an organic chemical, an organic, organic molecule. There's only 20 of them that exist in nature. And, but each protein is made up of a certain sequence. They got those, those different 21, 20 different uh, amino acids have to show up in a certain sequence to make a particular protein. So if I can see the figure uh, for a moment, we're gonna talk about something called RNAs A. So before you go any further, yeah. if people are shaking. Yes. There, there, okay. there are people having triggers from like middle school science class and <laughs> the horrible memory that that was in your life and so forth. And, and uh, some of you are, are thinking, oh my gosh, this is going to be just miserable. Um, I, I just wanna stop for a minute and let you know, we know what we're doing in the sense of we know we're about to get nerdy for a moment, we, we know that. Um, and we're gonna do our best to keep it engaging and make it understandable. But there's a reason we're doing this, and the reason is very simple. You go to church and you hear a story about a guy named David. It's easy to me remember, it's not you know, complex, and you're good, and you go out of church inspired. And then you go to science class, and I really hope as we do this series that the current students are paying attention or some of you went to science class long ago, or you watch a, a documentary, you read an article, and it's filled with facts, theories, scientific nerd stuff, and you don't know how to, to uh, combat that, and you just walk away thinking, they're right. Science has won, the Bible is wrong, but I still like to go to church. And you, you just think you've gotta live a contradiction. So because uh, what you're being given is some nerd information to say the Bible isn't true, we're, we're gonna give you a little bit of nerd stuff. And um, so the three nerds in the room, about to have a lot of fun. The rest of you, I, I'm just gonna ask you, try not to go back to science class in your mind and, and, and freak out, because this actually is engaging. Uh, we've done this enough times now 
Um, so let's keep going, and okay. uh, you're going to make sense of all this, and everybody's yeah. going to relax. Okay, and uh, this example was put together for me by a friend of mine, Dr. Carl Kruger, who's a microbiologist himself, a research scientist, um, and he put this together for me. Um, but anyway, uh, as I said, uh, a protein is made up of, of uh, amino acids in a certain sequence. One protein that is uh, microscopic. They're, they're microscopic. They're yes. teeny tiny pieces of a cell. So um, if we look at this very simple RNAs A, which has 156 amino acids in a string, uh, let's look at what the, we can actually calculate what the probability of this having come about by a random process. Now what you're seeing on, this, on the screen is that string of, uh, of letters, each one is representing one of the 20 different types of amino acids, and they have to come in exactly that order, okay? So if we, we can calculate what that probability is. So if we look at, let's say we start off with an, an M amino acid, we need an A, okay? The chances of, by random process, of an A joining the M is one chance in 20, because there's only one A in the 20 amino acids. So one chance in 20 to get an M and an A. Then we want to look at, well, now we got the M and A, we need the L. What's the chances of the L joining the M and A? Well, it's one in 20 also. And to get that probability, you multiply the two together. One in 20 for the A, one in 20 for the L, one in chance in 400, just to get those three together. You, you, you can probably there. see where this is going. Uh, if you look at the fourth letter, the E, got to multiply the one in 400 times the 120 again, it's one chance in 8,000. Now, if we continue this calculation all the way through, we find that the probability of this occurring is one chance in 20 to the 155th power. Now, this number is so incredibly tiny, it is basically telling you there's no way in the world this can happen. But to try to give you some sort of an example, let, let's imagine this. So, Jimmy, um, if I were to take this quarter, which is about one inch in diameter, and the distance from the Earth to the sun is about 93 million miles, and if I were to take this quarter and a bunch of other quarters and line them up on a path from the Earth to the sun. 93 million miles. 93 million miles away. One just inch one, inch, one inch at a time. 93 million miles away we're going to go. And I were to say to you, Jimmy, I have this path now from here to the sun, and it's all full of quarters, and there's one quarter that I painted red, and what I want you to do is climb in your handy-dandy little rocket ship and blindfolded, I want you to fly along this line from here to the sun, and I want you blindfolded to pick out the quarter that I painted red. Do you think there's much of a chance of you doing that? There is no chance of me doing there's that. There's no, no chance of doing that. Actually, there's exactly one in 20 to the 155th power. No, there's not even, it's not even, I'm paying attention. No, it's not even that good. No, 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 no. Your, your probability of picking out that quarter is much, much better than that one chance in 20 to the 155th power. Your chance of picking that out is about one chance, about six chances in 10 to the 12th power. That so sounds easy. The 20 to the 155th, that's like 10 to the 200th power. In order to make the probability comparable, and you've seen how ridiculous it would be for you to try to pick out that quarter, yeah. To try to get down to the probability of this protein coming about by random processes, we would have to have not one path, not one path of six trillion quarters. We would have to have a trillion paths 
of course. In fact, that wouldn't be enough. We'd actually have to have a trillion times a trillion times a trillion times a trillion about 12 times and before then, we could get to how minute the probability of that uh, protein forming by random chance. And blindfolded find one. And you gotta find, and you gotta pick through all those trillions of, uh, uh, of paths and find the one quarter uh, in, in the path that has six trillion quarters in it. That's how small the probability is. It ain't gonna happen. So even for those <clears throat> who got lost in science class somewhere along the way, we can follow the math. That's called impossible. And yes. we also need to highlight again, you're not talking about the probability of a cell turning into a human. You're simply talking about one protein coming into existence. Just a little period. protein of which there are many, many, many proteins in any given cell. So we've got to repeat that process and again that and again and again. Multiplied times that chance. Again and again and again. To even come up with a cell. Again and again and again. And okay, so what Ain't going to happen. Okay, right, that's so that's, that's for random chance, okay? It, these proteins did not come about by random chance, which Darwin said they did. Okay, we'll do time now. <clears throat> Is there enough time? All right, there's a Hubert Yockey. Hubert Yockey was a physicist. He, he uh, worked in the Manhattan Project, which developed the atomic bomb. Uh, he made a calculation of how long it would take for one gene in your DNA, one, just one gene, not the whole DNA, just one gene, how long it would take for that one gene to come about through a random process. And his calculation was 100 billion trillion years. That was what he calculated, 100 billion trillion years. Now, let's give Darwin the benefit of the doubt. Some people would believe that the Earth has been around for, or the universe has been around for 6,000 to 10,000 years, but we're gonna be as generous as we can possibly be for Mr. Darwin's sake, and we'll take and consider the age that modern science believes that the universe is, which is just shy of 14 trillion years. Billion. 14 billion years, 14 billion years. So 100. So, so, so 100 billion. billion trillion years is what Yaki said he needed to develop just one gene, and we only got 14 billion years to work with. In best case scenario. Mr. Darwin's out of time. He's out of time. He's out of time. Okay, so and we've eliminated time. Probability is not there either. And the randomness doesn't work either. Okay. okay. So now we're going to go to what Darwin really needed, which was transitional forms, fossil records. Because what Darwin said is supposed to happen is that animals are supposed to evolve from simple to complex through very, very slow changes. Intermediate, many, many intermediate transformational forms until you got to the next animal. Okay, so I'll show you a picture of the Archaeopteryx. Um, the Archaeopteryx, this is a bird-like uh, animal that uh, we found some fossils of. Uh, it has feathers, but it also has some resemblance to dinosaurs. It's got uh, some teeth in the bill, uh, some other uh, similarities to dinosaurs. Uh, the premise here is that uh, this evolved from dinosaurs. There's a fair amount of controversy with that, even among the environmental biologists. But let me go back and see and tell you what Darwin said about these transitional forms. He wrote this in The Origin of Species, the book he published in 1859. Um, <clears throat> he was very troubled by the lack of transitional forms. He said the number of intermediate varieties, his word for transitional forms or, or missing links, the number of intermediate varieties which have formerly existed on Earth must be truly enormous. 
Why then is not every geological formation and every stratum full of such intermediate links? This is the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against my theory. The lack of the fossil record in his day troubled him very much for the theory that he was espousing. 160 years later, we're still not any better off. Uh, let's go back to that picture of the archeologist, of the, of the archae, <laughs> archeopteryx, excuse me. Um, and let me tell you what, what Darwin is saying. Darwin is saying, I've got a dinosaur, and then slowly, step by step, I'm gonna get different transitional forms. Thousands of them are, should be appearing before this Archaeopteryx appears for his evolutionary process to work. Well, what we've found in the fossil record is we've got dinosaurs, yeah, and we've got the Archaeopteryx, we've got about 12 of those, but we do not have a single one of the thousands of intermediate forms that should be there. They're totally missing. Or the thousands that should come from the Archaeopteryx to a bird. To a modern bird. Right. Same, as, same, same way as also. So what the, if you're just looking at the evidence there, uh, uh, and if you're not predisposed to forcing an evolutionary answer, what we're seeing is another creature. Um, so we do have a, a handful of these strange fossils that have been found. Archaeopteryx, um, yes. And... And so some scientists say these are the missing links. And right. You go to science class and your science teacher tells you, but we've got missing links. We've, right. we've found the missing links right. in Darwin's theory. And you go, right. oh, again, the Bible's wrong. Darwin is right. Mm -hmm. But you're saying these are not missing links at all because we're missing too many missing links. I, I, what I'm saying is that, that uh, uh, the evidence for it is not there. The evidence is just not there. We should have seen thousands of intermediate forms in between as you said, dinosaur and Archaeopteryx and Archaeopteryx to the modern birds, and we don't have them. We got 12 of those, how can we find 12 of those we can't find any of the others? That's a troubling, that's a troubling problem. So, um, in addition to that, um, there is something called the Cambrian explosion, okay? And uh, basically, uh, prior to about 540 million years ago, there was life on Earth consisted of bacteria. Lots of bacteria, they were around for quite a while, but about 540 million years ago, over a stretch of time of a few million years, which is small by evolutionary standards, um, nearly every form of phylum, which is a high-level classification of animals, well above species, nearly every body type phylum uh, appeared in that Cambrian, at the beginning of that Cambrian uh, uh, explosion. So just These were marine life. The Cambrian explosion uh, is is where people are going to now since they can't hang their hat on Darwin. Is that, am I understanding what this is? Well, they have observed the Cambrian explosion and now they're looking at that and they're saying, ooh, we got some troubles with Darwin because remember Darwin is telling you that things needed to be changing slowly over time and gradually over time from these simple bacteria all the way up to modern man. But that's not what's happening. You're seeing nothing happen, and then along comes the Cambrian explosion, and then boom, all these animals appear. So even atheist and Christian scientists oh, oh, acknowledge there is this event oh, absolutely. in our history. Absolutely. They call the Cambrian explosion. Absolutely. That seems very similar to something recorded in the beginning of Genesis in, it, in my it, world. It, it's, it's more like a creation type event. Um, now, what I'm saying is I'm not saying that animals haven't evolved. I mean, we, we see animals evolving different kinds of 
cattle we produce and different kinds of horses we yes. produce. We've seen that. Evolution has just changed. Ch evolution is change over time. So I'm not saying that God didn't somehow use an evolutionary process to bring about different animals. Uh, but what I am saying, I can't, I can't prove that, that he didn't do that. What I, I, don't, I don't espouse that theory, but I can't prove that he didn't do that. What I am saying is that it did not happen by random chance. It did not, that such a thing could not have happened apart from God. Now, that's called the Cambrian explosion, it happened 540 million years ago. You move 300 million years later, the dinosaurs now show, show up in exactly the same kind of burst. And then towards the end of that Jurassic period, the mammals, the first mammals begin to show up. So you're seeing these spurts are occurring, not this gradual change that Darwin uh, have hypothesized. And that's what I mean by modern evolutionary bias. Biologists, I don't care if they're Christian or, or atheists, they do not believe in Darwinian evolution because it doesn't work. What they have put in its place is something called punctuated equilibrium. What they mean by that, that word equilibrium means nothing's happened and then punctuated, something suddenly happens. New animal forms show up. And this was developed by Stephen Jay Gould, the honest atheist that I mentioned to you earlier. The honest atheist. Right. And here is his explanation. Now, now to, to understand this, you remember, he's an atheist, doesn't believe in God, can't allow for God to be in this process at all. He's got to believe in his God, which is evolution, godless evolution. But here's his explanation of how evolution works. The rapid appearance of species, referring to things like the Cambrian explosion, uh, the rapid appearance of these species, plus the lack of transitional forms, I haven't got them, I have got no, none of those transitional forms, means that evolution works in spurts for unknown reasons and leaves little or no evidence. So, some evolution, no evolution, suddenly. Yeah, right. Static, nothing like, nothing like Darwin would explain. And even worse than that, it leaves no evidence for them and they have no reason, unknown reasons on why this happens. And that's what they hold to, that's what modern um, evolutionary biologists buy into is they look at this and they will, even though in your public high schools or in your PBS, Nova shows, uh, NPR, they're going to sing the praises of Darwin to the public, in private, this is what they will admit to. Right. Okay, so when you brought your research to me, um, I thought all of this was awesome, fun. I'm a little bit of a nerd, and it was engaging. Uh, and then you, you brought up one thing. And to me, that one thing is the mic drop moment. Like, when you see this, you're just done. I, I don't know how anyone sees this and tries to continue uh, saying that science has refuted the Bible. Um, and so I, I'd like us to just close with uh, your, your mic drop moment that you've got here. Tell everybody about this illustration, except it's not. It's, it's what's happening. Right. Okay, it's, uh, it's a concept called irreducible complexity. And the term comes about from the idea that uh, it challenges Darwin's idea. Darwin's idea was that um, um, you'd have species-to-species -species development uh, transitioned by having small random mutations in a body that provided some advantage, had to provide an advantage, and then you have another small, maybe 100,000 years later, another random mutation, and that would give you a little bit of an advantage, and survival of the fittest would allow this thing to, to go along. 
Um, there's a Dr. Behe, uh, he is a biochemist from uh, Lehigh University. Uh, he wrote this book called Darwin's Black Box. And what he's referring to by the term black box, what he means is that for Darwin, we didn't have the scientific instruments that we have today. So a cell, a single cell to him, was just a bunch of protoplasm, something like a jelly bean. That, that was his idea. So he- That's, that's why these are here. They're, they're not just for our snacking, but it's an illustration. Yes, exactly. So that was what he thought of, and that's why he could say, well, simple life form going to complex life forms as human beings. What we actually know today, though, is that the cell is an extremely complex manufacturing facility, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but there are things that exist in the cells that defy the idea of gradual evolutionary changes by mutation, little bit of extra benefit in each little part coming together. And I want to show you one of the examples of that. And uh, this is a um, flagellum motor. You probably saw this in high school class, your biology class in high school. You saw they talk about a little single-celled animal called the flagellum, and he had a little tail, and he swam around. Well, since 1973, scientists have actually known how that little tail works, and it works with this complex chemical, electrochemical motor, more complex than anything man has ever tried to design. And what you're looking at, this is not a picture of a motor, it doesn't look like a motor, this is a motor, this is a motor. You will see the stator, for those of you who know the stator, the white rings on the outside, uh, and the inside is the rotor that actually does the spinning, uh, the white object going up is the, is the drive shaft up to the bent object, object which is a universal joint that can wiggle in, or, or reshape in different directions to steer this thing, and then the long tail, which is a propeller. You also have all the bushings. All of these things are made up of different kinds of proteins, uh, that, uh, the bushings that keep this uh, motor in the cell wall of the flagellum bacteria. Uh, I'm not even going to discuss all the control mechanisms that are used to operate this. This, this motor is, is, is incredibly phenomenal, spins at about 100,000 RPM, and can reverse itself in a quarter of a turn. This, these are, these are uh, as an engineer, I would love to have designed something like this. That would be fantastic. Uh, I'd be very wealthy now had I been able to do that. Um, the, the, uh, the point, though, that I want to make, why is this thing so important, is, is because all of those parts in that motor have to come together at the same time in, for the, in order for there to be any benefit whatsoever to this bacterium. You can't have just a stator. That doesn't do anything. You can't have just a drive shaft. That doesn't do anything. You can't have just a, the tail. All of those parts had to come into existence simultaneously before there is any benefit to that bacteria at all, before it has a working motor. And that violates the fundamental premise of Darwinian evolution and any other godless evolutionary theory. So, uh, first of all, let's make sure everybody understands, because you are an engineer and that does look like a drawing of something that you built yeah. somewhere, mm -hmm. that that is microscopic. Right. It's inside of a bacteria. Right. Um, as well as you said, there are more in other cells in our body and yes. more motors and so forth. What 
blows my mind. First, when you see that, how, how do you keep thinking that we are gooey masses like jelly beans? That's, I had a science teacher who said the cell is like a jelly bean. We all had jelly beans, and that's why we've got them here today. And it's a jelly bean with a tail, and that's why it can, it can change its information because it's this gooey mass. And as of 1973, we could see that it was not a gooey mass, that that existed. Right. And so a couple of concerns come to mind. The first one is, uh, if in 19, up until 1973, I mean, Darwin ruled the world for over a century, and maybe still does in some circles, and he had no clue what he didn't know because he couldn't see. We didn't have microscopes powerful enough to see this until 1973, and so, you know, we're, we're saying we know, contrary to what God has told us to believe, um, based on science, and, and then we find out in 1973 with the invention of microscope and power. Specialized microscopes, electron we, microscopes. That we find out we, we, don't, we know things we've never known. Exactly. And then we're still finding out things about right. robotic uh, right. robots inside right. of us. Every day. Um, and so it blows my mind that we think we can say we know it all. Right. And we clearly are still discovering uh, things. I just read an article um, Saturday, yesterday, uh, about some astronomers discovering uh, some lighted rings or something, and they don't know what it is yet. And right. the point is, we're still coming across discoveries, and yet Absolutely. we are ready to emphatically say what we think we know uh, and try to erase God from that. But the real issue for me, and I'd, I'd like you to speak to, is they've known the flagellum motor existed since 1973. Yes. Um, just for the fun of it, that means my entire educational career, elementary school, middle school, high school, college, and for those that don't know, I did want to be a doctor for a period of time, which meant I took a lot of biology, chemistry. I enjoyed science, and I was never taught about the flagellum motor in any class ever, right. even though the scientific community knew it existed. Yes. I was taught... Yes. The jelly bean theory yeah. of Darwin. H how is it that a theory you say that modern evolutionary biologists no longer believe? Is there something else I can help with? My iPad just freaked out, sorry. Um, how is it if they no longer believe it, if we can see clearly evidence to the contrary, why is this still being taught? Why is this to many young children coming home from seventh grade, fifth grade, ninth grade, whatever the level is, why are they still being told that Darwin has undermined this yeah. utterly and completely and that we have, you know, a missing link or two to prove it? Yeah. Well, just as we would like to share the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world, there are those who would like to share the gospel of atheism to the world. I'm old enough to remember a time in which you could discuss God in the schoolroom, but laws have been changed that deny us that privilege. So that's part of the problem. Um, but I'm gonna read to you a little bit about uh, another quote from these folks that maybe will give you some insight into that. But before I do that, I wanna expand just a little bit more. This motor that I'm showing you is only one example of many. Your cells contain motors that are spinning at 6,000 RPM that produce energy for your muscles to move. As I'm, as I'm talking right now, those, hundreds of those motors in every cell of my body are spinning at 6,000 RPM, producing the energy for me to move and talk, for my heart to beat. 
There are timers. There are uh, walking robotic robots, molecular robots, walking along, doing all kinds of functions inside your body. And, and uh, when we finish this series, we're going to have a list of resources. And on that, you'll see a very short three-minute video. It was an animation put together for Harvard University's uh, chemistry department to encourage young people to get involved in chemistry. And you will see an animation of these different kind of robots functioning in the cell. It has to be an animation because you can't put a camera inside of a cell. Maybe one day we will, but we can't do it yet. Um, uh, so it's an animation. I called up a friend of mine, a doctor in microbiology, uh, just to double check, and, and so I sent him the link, and I said, uh, is this all real, or this, this walking robot that I'm seeing here, transporting waste out of the uh, human cells, is that real? And uh, he says, absolutely. Uh, and in fact, he sent me a paper uh, that he and some of his colleagues had just recently published showing another robot that they had discovered in an animation of how it worked. So there is lots of this evidence uh, that exists and is known in the scientific world. But there this, are... To be clear, because I don't know that we have said it as clearly in this, this service, this evidence points to what? The, these, are, uh, these are things that could not come about through random chance, which is, the, which is a fundamental premise of Darwinian evolution. That's why Darwinian evolution is really not accepted by modern biologists. Uh, some of them still cling to random chance. They, keep, they, keep, they do not want to, ex uh, to accept the idea of a god intervening into the development of life. They refuse to accept that. And I'm going to read you a quote. Because this type of design does point to a designer. If I look at this watch, I can tell you this thing did not evolve. This was designed. Right. Okay, you look at that motor, and I defy anybody to tell me that that thing was not designed. Uh, it did not come about through an evolutionary process. That's clear. Now, I've mentioned the book Darwinian, um, um, or, or Darwin's Black Box, if you go online and you look up this, you're going to find a court case which, which allegedly refuted Dr. Behe in his book. And I want to just mention very quickly, if I can, uh, what the story behind that is. Uh, there were some uh, folks that were trying to get uh, intelligent design, which is what Dr. Behe really birthed the idea of intelligent design uh, as, a, as, a, as a way to explain certain biological things we see in nature, like the motor. Um, and they wanted to get that taught in the public school systems alongside of, of Darwinian evolution. They just wanted it taught as an, an alternative theory. They were challenged in court. Um, the uh, opponents uh, brought in uh, their own biologist. Uh, they got themselves a judge who was inclined to go with Darwinian evolution. They did a lot of hand-waving. I've looked at the details. I don't have time to go through the details. I could explain to you later. Uh, but there was a lot of hand-waving uh, circular arguments, and the bottom line is the judge, of course, decided in favor of the uh, Darwinian evolutionists. No intelligent design is going to be allowed in our public school systems. Now, this is a final quote here is from uh, a biologist, Franklin Harold. He wrote this in The Way of the Cell. These are books that only biologists read. In 2001, he wrote in response to Darwin's Black Box, Dr. Behe's book, he wrote, we should reject as a matter of principle the substitution of intelligent design for the dialogue of chance and necessity. 
They want to believe in chance and necessity rather than what's obviously been intelligently designed. But we must concede that there are presently no detailed Darwinian accounts of evolution of any biochemical system, only a variety of wishful speculations. That's the extent of what science understands about godless evolution in the world of biology. So that is, to wrap up today, the reason we're doing this series. Uh, if you guys would put that quote back up, because what hit me as we were reading this uh, and the emphasis is either mine or Daryl's. In this case, I, I underlined the phrase as a matter of principle. Uh, what that means is they look at the flagellar motor, but as a matter of principle, they would not suggest an option of a designer for such a design. It's just Rejected. principle. Rejected. And the reason we're doing this series is because I, like I think most of us do, come into the world with a naivety and innocence you go to school and believe every teacher is morally upstanding and uh, uh, speaks only unequivocal truth and so forth, and you, you believe that about every news source and everything, and well, the truth is, it, it doesn't take very long before we figure out that every human has a worldview, politics, faith, no faith. They have experiences of grandmothers, that took them to church or fathers that dragged them to church but were abusive and so they hate God. I mean, every human. We actually had a quote we didn't include because we didn't think there would be time of a scientist saying that there's no such thing as a scientist without a bias. Right. But we like to think as we go into our science class and, and a science teacher says something that that is empirical truth and, and it's just there. But what we need to understand is that there are scientists and some of those scientists are Christians. And some of those scientists are agnostic or atheist. But as we see in this quote, as a matter of principle, there are also atheists who have a day job of science. Right. Meaning that their first agenda is to make sure that a door is never opened to faith. Yes. And even in light of any evidence that seems to make it clear that a godless theory, and we say godless theory, it means without God, mm -hmm. so a theory like Darwin's evolution, mm -hmm. um, that, that we're gonna hold on to that right. and we're gonna excuse the idea of a designer right. simply because they are an atheist, first and foremost. And yet, because they have PhDs in biology or astrophysics or chemistry or whatever, they get to write articles in scientific journals. Right. And, they get, and they get paid to do that and they have a lot of their of their reputation. The older ones have a lot of their reputation invested in this form of evolutionary thinking. And so for them to reverse their position after decades uh, is unthinkable for them to do. Some of the younger biologists that are coming up now are looking at these Darwin theories, this, these random chance stuff, and they're going, this doesn't work. This is not working. And that's really who, what Dr. Behe discovered as he was looking at this. He's saying, this isn't working. So where we're going to leave you today is, first of all, knowing there are three more parts of this series. Daryl's going to be back next week as we leave biology and, and touch on a completely different scientific area. And then I'm going to do two more parts of the series looking at uh, um, history and archaeology and, and some other, I think, interesting things. Uh, but we want to leave you today with really two thoughts. First of all, if you're a believer, 
I want you to know that you no longer have to hang your head in shame uh, when you show up in an intelligent setting. Just because you don't know everything Daryl knows, what you do need to know is that this information exists. You can go find it, you can do the research if you ever intend to get into a debate, but most importantly, I I've watched a lot of Christians just believe they're somewhat dumb because of their faith and they just walk away or hang their head. And especially students who will maybe even make the opposite choice and that is to walk away from their faith and choose to represent themselves as intelligent. Uh, what I want to say to believers is you no longer have to choose between intelligent and faith. Matter of fact, the two go hand in hand, yes, actually. They yes, they some do. of the smartest people yes, they do. today as well as all throughout history yes. had great faith. Yes. Um, and then what I want to say secondly to those who are yet to be believers, potentially, because you thought, wait a minute, I don't want to be one of those dumb Bible Belt believers who ignores the facts that are out there. And as a result, you have chosen not to make Jesus Christ your king. I just want to challenge you to reconsider that in light of what you've begun to hear today. And again, we can only scratch the surface today. I mean, you would have liked to go for like 10 hours. I mean, great. With all the stuff that you know, and, and we just can't do that. So our goal today was to give people introductions so that they can go and do more research right. uh, for those who care. And for all of you, at the very least, to know um, there are scientists all over the world who go to work and then go to church and do not believe it's a contradiction. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because what they see in the scientific world actually strengthens their faith. Absolutely. You being one example. Yeah, I'm an example and better examples than me. Francis Collins, who, who directed the whole genome project that mapped the human gen genome, uh, dedicated man of science, he's a strong Christian believer. Just one example. There are many, many others. Let me pray for everybody as we close today. God, I first want to pray for all of us who are believers and have struggled to have faith and to have faith proudly because we think someone would look down on us and say, you believe that dumb stuff, don't you know? And today, God, I pray for anybody who has struggled that they will be able to boldly believe that there are answers for the tough questions. I pray that you will increase our faith because of what we've heard here today as well as what we may go and, and continue to discover on our own as, as well as throughout the rest of the series. And then I pray, God, for those who have yet to make Jesus their king, especially if it's because of some intellectual debate or argument that they've heard. What I'd like to remind everyone here of is that Jesus Christ came to the earth, lived a sinless and perfect life so that when he died, his blood could pay for your sins instead of his own. And then he was raised from the dead by the power of the Father, supernatural God that we'll be talking more about. And as a result of that, he can offer you resurrection from death in this life to eternal life. It's a free gift of salvation that simply comes with recognizing who he is and what he's done. And if you've never done that, I want to help you do that right now. Wherever you're seated or standing, wherever you are, watching online, anything, simply pray and say something like this to yourself and to God. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. And now, I want to live for you. I thank you that you love me 
thank you that I'm forgiven. And my simple prayer here today is that you give me a life of great meaning in your kingdom. Amen. Let's celebrate with those people, everybody. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. If you've made the decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's the best decision you'll ever make. If you've been impacted in any way, we'd love to hear about it. Head over to gracelife.church resources where you can share your story and find other tools for following Jesus. We hope you go out and make Jesus famous in your world.